Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 12th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. You guys know the famous definition of uh, of the word chutzpah, which is the uh, the man who kills his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he is an orphan. Um, I am seeing a great deal of chutzpah in calls from the Trumpian right on Joe Biden and the Democrats, essentially to show mercy and to bring unity going forward. What kind of unity is this that Biden and the Democrats are proposing when they are talking about impeachment? That's not unifying. Um, People who supported or did not attack or did not fight against the disunity that Donald Trump introduced into our political system, not just from 2016 onward, but after the uh, election in November that he lost fair and square by the exact same electoral total that he won in 2016 and that it was incumbent upon him both as a, as a leader uh, and as a human being not to play this loser's game, but he did. And so tickled in some quarters and terrified of him in other quarters and um, uh, terrified of his voters in other quarters were uh, enormous numbers of Republicans, a tiny fraction of whom, elected Republicans, a tiny fraction of whom likely believed that the election was stolen in the way that Trump talked about it because, you know, uh, they're idiots, among other things. Um, That now they have the nerve to try to fight against the the argument that Trump should be impeached and removed on the grounds that uh, this is uh, not going to contribute to national unity in the wake of a crisis that Trump himself promulgated, instigated, incited, and effectively led. That's that's a that's a good one. That's well, a- look, I understand the passion on the part of your argument, John. And what I'm about to say is extremely unpopular. But why stop now? Um, the it is incumbent upon Democrats if we really want a way out of this crisis and not a talking point to display magnanimity. It's a virtue. Um, Republicans have a literal gun to their head at this moment from Trump supporters. Now they gave it to them. They loaded it. They cocked it. They put it to their own heads. It's their fault. Nevertheless, if you want to give them an off ramp from this sort of thing, you have to, and, and for the better, the better of the country, as a result, you have to provide them with terms that are favorable to them that they can accept if the objective here is merely to force them into their corners, to force them to own Trump, which is a politically adroit instinct on the part of Democrats, if they think it's a, a politically uh, a politically detrimental thing for Republicans to be tarred with association with Trump, you would want them to associate themselves with Trump. And that the way you do that is this 14th Amendment maneuver we were talking about yesterday, trying to expel these members, associating them with the Confederacy, um, giving them every reason they have to retreat to their respective corners. And that's what we don't want in the interest of national unity. It's politically advantageous for Democrats to do that, but it would be disastrous for national comedy. Okay. But let's, 
I am I am not I don't disagree that it is important to uh, knit up the you know knit up the frayed garment of American uh politics and American society but that does not mean that those that the person who incited the disunity and caused the riot that led to the death to the murder of at least one person and you know contributed to the deaths of four others uh, that that person then escapes justice. I mean, you don't say that in the interest of equanimity, we're not going to try somebody for a crime or we're not going to hold someone accountable. Uh, that is what the argument is being made. Kim Strassel, my friend at the Wall Street Journal, says, why? I mean, Biden, I mean, hey, hey, this is the way Biden begins if he wants to have a, a theme of American unity. I mean, what's the point here? Is it, is it, is it, uh, uh, the ha- Hamlet's father saying of uh, to Hamlet of his mother, "Leave her to heaven, leave Trump, leave Trump alone." You know he's he'll be he's been punished enough or something like that. Abe, you were gonna? Yeah, I don't. I mean, you know, I think we should point out here that I don't believe that either either side is interested in unity for for political reasons. Anyway, I mean, you know, the 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 as you know, Noah. Points out, yes, it would it would be great for the country, but um, uh, politically, Democrats don't don't need this. They 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 want to isolate um, Trump. They want to point out to the country um, the 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 unique threat that he will continue to be. Um, and um, the truth is, Republic Trump the the Trump base wants this fight to continue anyway. They don't they don't the last thing they would ever want to see is anything resembling unity. Unity is poison to them. The, the a, a unity a, a gen, genuine political unity um of the kind that we would love to see would for them be um like uh the 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 cuckization of the entire right, right? I mean, you know, Olive branches are absolutely anathema. Well, this, is, was, this is a very specific. They, they don't want unity. They, they they just don't necessarily want to see Trump impeached, or, and, although and they might. They were also unhappy. There was this weird uh, moment, right, between, before last Wednesday and before the results of the Georgia special election came in, where a slightly, I'm saying this, you know, a slightly chastened Democratic uh, uh, House. Uh, majority realized that they had actually had some response from America's voters and that America's voters weren't hundred percent on board with their progressive project. And there was discussion and argument about that within the caucus. That was all useful. And for, but for the, for the Trump folks to look, to look at what happened in between that moment where there was actually some, some not, I wouldn't even say humility, but they were slightly chastened to say now after the leader of their party and their president in fomented an insurrection, there have to be consequences. And actually the person I'm going to blame now, I think Biden has done very well. He's stayed out of this. He hasn't talked about impeachment. He's basically said, let Congress do what Congress needs to do. Mike Pence is the person right now who should probably be not, you know, he met with the president yesterday and evidently they had some sort of cordial meeting. How do you have a cordial meeting with someone who sicked a mob on you to kill you? I mean, it's a well, very strange moment. Well, they had a cordial meeting, but I think it's pretty pretty clear that whoever is in the Pence camp, Mark Short, the chief right. of staff yeah. who was banned from the White House or something, is leaking like crazy right. to uh, journalists this right. morning about Trump's behavior in the White House and the fact that people were trying to reach him on the Hill, meaning 
Pence right. during the riot and that he wouldn't take the phone call because he was too call. busy having private orgasms watching the riots on his behalf. Right. I mean, uh, you know, assuming that that anecdote is is true, um, uh, that that right there is grounds for impeachment and removal in about five seconds. I mean, that he was sitting there watching television, getting calls from the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader, and his own Vice President, who were literally under siege across town. Literally <laughs> under siege, and he wouldn't take he wouldn't take the calls because he was enjoying the spectacle too much. And he has said, by the way, also to regret, as one expects he would, uh, the second statement that he made, where he said, "You know, violence has no place," and all of that. What have you called that? Well, on the podcast, I, I don't know if it was Noah or Abe, but what have you guys said? Oh, you know, he's going to be, you know, pull, saying in twenty four hours that he didn't mean it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it didn't work. He did it because it was supposed to work, and if it didn't work, then he shouldn't have done it because it was wimpy or whatever it was that he <laughs> that he might think. Um, I I do think that there is an enormous problem here uh, in how how we're going to reach some kind of equilibrium back in in public life with the um, rise of the counter narrative from the right that uh, this is being used as an opportunity to uh, destroy whatever is left of uh, conservative power and authority in the United States. Conservatives don't have the media. Conservatives don't have the universities. Conservatives don't have the elites. And, uh, but, you know, they had the House and the Senate, or they had, you know, they had the presidency and the Senate, and now they don't have either. Um, And now here they come. Here they're coming. Uh, The deplatforming on Twitter, the destruction of Parler, uh, these uh, corporations and banks and PACs saying that they're not going to support the candidates who voted, uh, you know, to question the results of the election. And the idea being, as uh, our friend Ben Shapiro said yesterday on his podcast, that, you know, it, that's just, this is just the the camel's nose. Like this is, this, this is the way that they are going to come at the right. So, Right now, it's politicians who wouldn't affirm the results of the election on January 6th. And and in a month, it'll be, if you voted for Trump, we're going to fire you. Now, I, I, that may be extreme. That may not really be the way things go. We are talking about 75 million people, after all. But that's the fear on the right. And that itself um, is a fomenter of disunity, that fear, and can be used to, you know, puff things up and uh, create this sense of grievance that uh, remains the most potent force on the political right, even after a 2016 election in which they took, conservatives took the reins of power in the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and, you know, found themselves in a dominating position at the state and local levels in the United States, effectively leaving the Democratic Party at that moment in charge of the 10 largest cities and their populations and not all that much else in and if the you, United if, States, except if New you York think and that California. this is an overreaction, I think you can make a, a case that it's an overreaction. I think it's really case-by-case case basis. Which, which is an overreaction? The, the general re- re- response from the private sector to this menace. Um, I think it's a big. there's a big distinction to be made between um, – cutting off 
access to Parler's servers as it's actively fomenting insurrection and, and violent threats against lawmakers and cutting off donations to Republican lawmakers from banks. Those are two very different things, but they're all part of the same reaction. And I think you can make a case that it's an overreaction, but it's an overreaction in response to an epochal event that was your responsibility. You did this. Um, I, I think probably just about everybody believes that Democrats suffered in the 2020 elections and the farther down the ballot didn't do as well as they would have because of the violence, because of the violence in major American cities that they presided over, the violent whom they coddled, and the failure of the party to make a big bright line distinction between peaceful protest and riotous demonstration. And that Republicans will suffer similarly. They will suffer similar electoral consequences because the public doesn't like this sort of thing. So Democrats have an advantage that they could press in order to get Republicans on board, which is their own self-advantage, their own self-interest. If you want to win elections again, this sort of thing is anathema. Come on over. Right. But in the House, <clears throat> this is the complication with the big sort, you know, where people now live uh, geographically in, in proximity to the people they agree with ideologically in a way that was not the case uh, throughout most of American history. So the Senate involves, you know, there are only 10 states or something like that that are so dominated by Republicans, you know, that, that, uh, that there's, there's no chance of getting the senators to be, you know, uh, rational, let's say. But in the House, it's much, much more. Those, uh, uh, the Trump uh, partisan voter affiliation numbers in, I don't know, 100 of the House seats are 20 points or more. And so for them... Uh, they they have to win their own elections, and this is how they win their own elections and stay and prevent themselves from being primaried by somebody else. I, I mentioned last week Chip Roy, who is a Republican congressman from South Texas, who had been Ted Cruz's chief of staff, said in announcing that he would not contest the results of the election that he might be signing his own political death warrant by doing so. And it's just a matter of fact that you can't expect people to um, publicly, you know, sign what might be their political death warrants. I mean, maybe you should for moral reasons and the health and safety of the republic, but they're not going to do it. Human nature dictates otherwise. And so um, the the party, generically understood to be a, it, it, its own independent force, needs to separate itself from Trump. But as we've been saying for years, there is no Republican Party anymore. There is a fundraising machine that goes by the name of the Republican Party that raises money at the national level and then distributes it and enriches itself and enriches its you know, media buyers and enriches the 168 members of the Republican National Committee who are its committeemen and vote on its chairman and all of that. Um, but there is, the, but the parties don't exist anymore in the same way as independent structures that, as Yuval Levin says, you know, mold rather than serve as platforms. And there, so I don't know what the Republican Republicans can do when you have this body of people, half the Republican caucus that feels itself unable, if it were even willing, unable to do what is necessary to combat and to take advantage of democratic weakness and to combat Republican weakness. But uh, I mean, aren't the 
Democrats also making a kind of devil's bargain here with pri- the with uh, private corporations and in particular with Silicon Valley, which we, we talked a little bit about yesterday, but we forgot to note just how intertwined um, the, the incoming Biden administration is with some of these big tech companies. Yeah, a lot of the people on his transition team come from these companies. A lot of former lobbyists are going to be staffers in his White House. He's given important positions to them. So I feel like it, it's funny who one person we haven't heard much from is Elizabeth Warren in the last few weeks about big tech. And she had actually been one of the people on the Democratic left who'd been critical of some of what big tech has proven itself willing to do in these situations. But the Democrats are going to end up in a situation where it, if they're consolidating political power at the same time that they're con- that they're eager to have private corporations helping them with that, that that could serve as a, as a point of backlash for a lot of voters, even those, especially once Trump is off stage. That's that is very concerning to a lot of regular people. The idea that your bank is not going to do business with you because of who you voted for. I know what you said this earlier, John. Right now, that's an extreme concern. But I think the events of the past week have given a lot of people that fear and they didn't have it before. They would always sort of roll their eyes and say, oh, you're overreacting. But actually, there there are some examples here that are an overreaction that have held, that nobody's challenging. In fact, people are praising it on the Democratic Party side. So that actually has a, I think, long-term consequence for the Democrats with their own coalition, but it's very disturbing to a lot of people. And it should be, I think that kind of power is, is extra democratic and it is not something that we were able to manage to try to control beforehand. And it's even worse now. Right. Well, it's like the most prophetic statement made in the 2010s, uh, short-term advantage, long-term destructive effect by Mitch McConnell in response to Harry Reid blowing up the filibuster for judicial nominees when he said, you will regret, I'm telling you, don't do this because you are going to regret it because we're going to have this power just like you did and you're not going to be happy with the results and look at the results. 200 or something plus judges that Trump appointed in just four years? I mean, that that is what happens. So you have this kind of short-term gain uh with uh, the corporations announcing they are going to establish this fealty test or whatever you want to call it, loyalty to the Republic test on who they're going to support, which, you know, if they were saying this about, you know, um, Antifa or something like that, we would probably say that that's good. It's a lawless movement that's, you know, uh, anarchistic and trying to, you know, destroy the fabric of our society. Um but this is only I, I'm, the simple fact of the matter is that the members of Congress who on last Wednesday who voted to object to the results of the elections in in Arizona and Pennsylvania are people who are siding with an anarchistic uh, mob. And so, you know, I, I can understand why Hallmark wouldn't want to be associated with them. But it is this question of does Hallmark then stop selling, you know, greeting cards to, I mean, Hallmark is a company, uh, I'm sure, that depends enormously on the business of the 74 million people who voted for, for Trump. I mean, the Hallmark Christmas movies aren't being made for hipsters in Brooklyn. I can tell you that much. You know, that is not who's watching them and for whom they make 50 a year now. So... You know, this is a this is a serious this is a a serious game that is 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 being played. Yeah, it would also contribute to the problem. <clears throat> I mean, part of the problem, as I wrote in a piece yesterday for the blog, is that 
politics as we understand it knows no rational limits anymore. Politics is the brands you consume and the food you eat and the commercials you watch and the television you watch and who you associate with and where you decide to move. And none of that is politics. It's political, but none of it is politics properly understood. It cannot be addressed or remedied in the political arena. And so when people become, and they become to associate with their identity, with their ideas, those two things cannot be divorced from each other. And you have this now increasing sense of paranoia around those ideas. You get what you get here. I mean, the, the depoliticization of American civilization is the the only means I see of reducing tensions here. I mean, it's not like this happened overnight. We've been doing this to ourselves for for the better part of a decade, well before Trump. I, I really do think, though. <clears throat> You know, not to not to be the you know I, I don't know I mean not to sort of come out so strong in every way in this regard, but um, the the general sense of aggrievement at the decision to to uh, remove Trump from Twitter and to go at uh, Parler's you know the fact that Parler sits on servers that uh, have eff- effectively th- thrown it off and made it impossible for it to to, to exist. Um, it, it's all well and good for people to make a free speech case and a, um, you know, and a sort of political, uh, this idea that there's a political attack going on on the right. Uh, if 10% of what we are reading right now is true, that uh, there is talk of a, of a gigantic nationwide violent revolt thing on January 17th, that the FBI has let people know in state capitals that they have that there is chatter about you know attacks on state capitals. That the FBI has told members of Congress that they should wear bulletproof vests and that those bulletproof vests can be expensed under congressional rules. That all of that is going on. If ten percent of it is true, then this argument about <clears throat> you know the 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 um, the Silicon Valley. Uh, attack on the rights of Americans has to be put to one side at a time of emergency. Now, as, as we, we said yesterday, as you said, like the problem with emergencies is that people like Andrew Cuomo just love to extend out the emergency so that they can have the power forever. Um, but if the emergency extends at least till September 20th, so January 20th, I, I don't know that it is, uh, that the conservative complaint here uh, outweighs the imminent danger because we can no longer say that that danger doesn't exist. It would be like saying that there was no threat from Al-Qaeda. I'm sorry to put it this way, but like there was no further threat from Al-Qaeda after September 11th. I I, I actually disagree. Um, Not, not in the severity of the emergency, not, I I mean, and I don't dismiss um, these reports at all. I think this is all true. Um, But I do think the second that the private sector steps in, in the way it has, and in the way that Christine describes, I think it it will only make things worse. Um, I I don't, I don't think it's their role. And I think it exacerbates um, the problem. Uh, If this keeps up in the same way, we will start to see. Um, I think pretty shortly people saying, you know, when this first happened, I was against the rioters, but now I think they were onto something because now, now we are being besieged from all sides. Um, this is Noah. I think, you know, your, your, your post was excellent yesterday about the politicization of everything and this sort of arms race 
um, um, wherein um, the the everything is becoming um, political, but not politics. This sort of is politics. This this actually turns the the cultural and the um, private sector aspect of our politics into um, sort of legislation by other means. Um, and I think, and that, and blurring that line is, I think, a dangerous uh, step, no matter the, the the emergency state of affairs. It certainly is, but I sympathize with the impulse. These firms have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors, and if they do not want to associate with an insurrectionary movement, that is not only their right but their obligation. And then there does have to be some consequence, some social consequence outside the public sector for this kind of behavior. That's right and natural and, and just too. Right. I mean, there's no, there's no, well, I mean, if there's no reward for subsidizing this kind of behavior, commercial reward, well, so, so the, then you're obligated so, the, the, to yourself from it. So like the way it's been, you know, sort of up until now is um, very often like, you know, investment firms and stuff have uh, like uh, sort of woke portfolios, you know. So if if uh, the customer chooses to not associate, to not enrich parties that it that it deems beyond the pale, uh, it the, the, the customer can't has a route to doing that. Um, I think it's slight. This is slightly different. This is this is um, well, there's no al- there's no alternative for the consumer. If this is a market, a marketplace, and you're allowed to make those kind of decisions that Noah's describing, which I think is correct, then there has to be somewhere else they can go. But now the places they could go are also being shut down. And Parler is actually suing Amazon Web Services. Uh, they filed a lawsuit already saying you can't shut us down. There's no alternative for us. Um, so I think that's actually where people start to feel painted into a corner, hemmed in, as you said, like under siege, right. is that they is don't different- have a... And, and I agree with John. John's absolutely right that if there's an emergency situation, there is justification for suspending some of the, some of our uh, concerns about big tech, which actually much predate, for some of us, definitely predate Trump. But the, but the, so you can say, look, until every, until the new government's installed and we know everyone's safe and sound, we're doing these emergency things. But that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is anyone who talks in, in these far right chat rooms and talks about how the election was stolen and who talk about fomenting violence are out. Well, that's been going on. Antifa has been doing that on Twitter for years. I mean, this is not there's a weird disconnect. I think Silicon Valley looks at this from one perspective because they are a mono uh, political body. Like there are very few conservatives or Republicans right. in Silicon Valley. So they actually are making what they think to be reasonable assessments here, assessments that a lot of conservatives were saying, why weren't you making these over the summer? Not to make it an equivalence, because it's not, because what Trump's uh, goons did are much, much worse. But there is a concern that where do these people go? And rage, it's in a sense, it's a kind of mental version of the lockdown we've all been under, right? Like, where do they go with all these feelings? Where do they, who do they go to connect with? Um, we don't know. They're going to go to Gab and some other, you know, Signal and other things which have skyrocketed in terms of members. But some of those are much harder to monitor. So I, the emergency powers thing, I think, is is absolutely legitimate until Biden's administration is installed and the, this point of, you know, the heat has cooled. Um, but I don't trust them to pull back after that at all. Well, look, look there to kind of uh, separate the strands here. So does what's happening with Parler, which is effectively like saying, 
Um, you know, we are, there's this thing called electromagnetic pulse that could destroy all machines, right? But we're not going to, it's not going to be done so that all machines, we're going to target an electromagnetic pulse at this one thing and make it impossible for it. It's like, uh, it can't go on a road, you know, it can't drive on a road. It can't, uh, you know, it, it, it can't open a stand at, at a, at a market in the commons, you are denying its ability to exist. That gets to the problem of the uh, aggregation of power at Amazon and a couple of these web service providers. It is a different question uh, because, you know, this is where the Mitch McConnell example takes place, which is if they can do it to Trumpers, they uh, or you know or ex- extremist you know um, Gadsdenites or whatever you want to call it, they can do it to the left too. And so you know invoking this power is bad, and the fact that it can be invoked and used makes a very strong argument for the breakup of of, of Amazon and the refusal uh, to allow the aggregation of this amount of power over the internet to one or two or or three companies. So that's that's one key point and that's a a larger issue where you could in other circumstances have seen a kind of grand coalition of josh hawley on the right and elizabeth warren on the left saying these companies have too much power this was not what the constitution intended they are monopolies or amazon is functioning as a monopoly over the gate to the internet it cannot be allowed to continue doing that and and would be broken up as a as a result by new legislation on Capitol Hill. How that would happen now, because no one will talk to Josh Hawley, I don't know. But that's was that was, I think, what we thought was inevitably going to happen in the in the twenty twenties. Um and 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 now and now it might not. Uh I do wanna say that I I don't the other thing that's going on here is these companies have been dealing because of their monoculture position have been dealing with a with a gigantic onslaught from the, from the left side of the political aisle that um the right complaint the complaints of the right have been you know like gnats buzzing around compared to they won the election for Trump they allowed the Russians to do this with Trump Cambridge Analytica won the election for Trump blah 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 and so all, so they've been, people inside these companies have been sitting there coming up with remedies, people who agree with this and want to, you know, do something about it. And this is very much like what happened again. I'm sorry to use the analogy after 9-11. What are we going to do? Well, you pull off the shelf tactics down, stuff that's been bubbling around, that's been on the shelf. You know, that was what the Patriot Act was, was there were various provisions that were knit together that were pre-existing, that people had entered as legislation or come up with over the previous five years to deal with a contingency like this. And they sort of glommed them together and passed it in three weeks or a month. And that was the Patriot Act. Similarly, there's no way that Parler would have been deplatformed in 48 hours had somebody not already come up with the modality to deplatform Parler from Amazon Web Services. That was something that someone had proposed last year at Amazon, and they said, go away, and then someone's like, oh, remember that? Let's let's do that. Uh, all this stuff with the packs, all of that, that didn't just happen in, the, you know, in, in, in 12 hours. These have been ideas that have been percolating around 
uh, woke corporate America for years, and they were just pulled off the shelf. And like all such things, the long-term consequences seemed uninteresting compared to the short-term need and the short-term emergency. And are they going to regret it? Of course they're going to regret it. They're not, but it's going to be harder for them to know to regret it. Like did, uh, the NFL's ratings are down 20%, right? 20, 25% this year. No one had anything to do but watch football. And, you know, it's not like there was so much else to do on Sundays when football came back because everything in America is just so much fun now and there's so much to do outside. You know, football politicized. It, 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 uh, it, you know, it alienated a whole bunch of people um, and they're suffering. Um, and the alienation of a large swath of the conservative audience is going to be something that they're going to deal with, but they're not going to know so easily. They're going to say, I don't know. It's a recession. You know, that's why we're da- our business is down as, as people pull back and pull away because of their anger at the way can they're I just, being treated. Can I just add one thing to this public-private discussion with these companies is that the government is in business with a lot of these companies. Like, they host government servers, too. It's not just private, you know, businesses like Parler or, or uh, Twitter. I mean, the, the Amazon Web Services and Google contract with the federal government all the time. And in fact, it's interesting that you brought up the pressure from the left. They have a lot of Google got a lot of pressure from its own employees not to go into business with the Defense Department on on AI research and drone research, because the very woke people who work at Google out in California didn't like that. They're like, we don't want to build weapons. We're here to do good. So there's the public private distinctions that make some of these arguments very persuasive actually don't really exist in practice because the government relies on these services too. So again, long-term, the concern is if if the government itself, if the bureaucracy of the federal government can't get away from using these companies, the fact that the companies are, are uh, have a very uh, pronounced political bias and a lot of pe- concentrated power make it even more difficult to regulate what they're doing when they want to do a big shutdown. Right. Now, uh, let me uh, let me pull back and uh, talk to you guys about um, our, our old friends at uh, the Bonson Group who have uh, come back uh, with a new set of uh, of uh, recommendations uh, for me uh, to uh, to read to you guys over over the next month or so. Um, their first round of spots focused on the lack of intellectual heft and frankly, the lack of work ethic from the majority of today's financial advisor community. But just as the country is looking for some kind of unity amid a time of political distress, uh, the Bonson Group has decided it will no longer be divisive and will stop focusing on the laziness and low engagement of so many investment professionals. Bonson Group will do its best to build unity and cohesion by not speaking so much to the sad state of affairs in the industry of financial advice giving and instead focus on the positive. The positive is this. The Bonson Group is made up of 27 people with offices in New York City and Newport Beach, California, managing $2.6 billion, providing comprehensive investment management, financial planning, and estate and tax planning services. The Bonson Group communicates tirelessly with its clients to make them more informed as investors, and to offer a truly thoughtful investment approach to the challenges of today's financial markets. Read their investment commentary at DividendCafe.com and check out from that site all you may want to know about the folks at the Bonson Group, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Podcast yet again. Um, So uh, I... 
let's just uh, talk a little about the uh, the. We're, we're now talking about the, the the threat to the right, and now there's the question of the civil war on the right. I was reading yesterday, I've been reading a book called um, uh, Season of the Witch, which is a, uh, a sort of history of uh, San Francisco by David Talbot, who is one of the creators of uh, Salon, uh, 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 maybe the first sort of independent web magazine and a often ridiculous and somewhat disgraceful publication. Uh, but it, it was a, it was a, a sort of pioneer. Um, and, and this book is very interesting. It's a very progressive history of a very progressive city and full of, you know, kind of mushy, you know, kumbaya stuff, uh, that's kind of nauseating. Uh, but, um, he, it's an honest book and he writes a lot about how the summer of love, uh, uh, degener- had within it even you know from 67 68 69 that the the neighborhood that became the famous uh you know the hate the neighborhood that was sort of the the heart of hippiedom uh was a very very rough and very dangerous place for people to live and to and to uh function and that uh, at the same time you had you know, uh, the Black Panthers uh, on the rise and the way that the Black Panthers functioned um, was to uh, uh, threaten, either implicitly or explicitly, threaten the lives uh, of politicians, public officials, policemen, and their families, and sometimes act on those threats um, and and uh, thereby get a lot of these politicians to kind of go along with them out of fear. So, for example, um, speaking of uh, the mayor of San Francisco at the time, uh, Joseph Alioto, Alioto's boundless optimism about the city was immediately challenged by a series of stormy events. During his first year in office, rioters clashed repeatedly with police in the hate, and on the San Francisco State campus, a lecturer at state named George Murray who belonged to the Black Panther Party, called publicly for the assassination of slave masters Alioto and police chief Cahill. Three San Francisco policemen were shot after they pulled over a van filled with armed Panthers three blocks from the Hall of Justice. A police station in the Richmond district was bombed. Now, I'm citing this obviously because of the uh, parallels to almost everything that went on in, in 2020. But to say that uh, the fact that we have moved into a period in which, as I mentioned, a newly elected uh, representative major from Michigan says that he knows of at least one case in which somebody voted the way he voted on Wednesday night on the the, um, uh, electoral challenges out of fear for himself and his family, Um, that uh, the fact that this is a, uh, uh, that the the, the the Trump inspired mob um, has this has now taken the fear that Trump has represented, which is a fear of political retribution for crossing him, now into a fear of actual retribution. Uh, represents a unique moment in uh, American political history at the national level. There's been stuff like this all the time. It's what gangsters do in cities, right? They, 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 they get in, interwoven with uh, uh, politics 
uh, in neighborhoods and stuff like that. And then when uh, political officials say, I can't do that, they say, okay, well, you know, uh, good luck to your wife then. I mean, that's a, that's a classic old timey way that people uh, have, have behaved in rough fashion. Remember Trump loves that word, right? Very, very rough. That guy was very, that's, they're very rough. We could be very rough. That's, that's mafia talk. That's, that's building trades, mafia talk. Um, but I, there has been almost none of that that we know of at the federal level. Uh, and, and uh, you know, this is why the Republican Party, despite what I was saying about how the House has no real, you know, incentive, a lot of the conservatives have, have no incentive to go against to go against Trump because of the way their districts are, are structured. Um, why they they better they have every reason if they want a life and a future in politics to stand with the notion that th- this force needs to be extirpated in some fashion. Well, and and if you think it through, Trump himself isn't ev- doesn't even have the courage of his supposedly, you know, being rough as good convictions because we have reports that he met with Kevin McCarthy uh, yesterday. And when McCarthy pressed him on, you know, this, this, look what happened. Trump's response was that that was Antifa. So he's not even embracing the the destructive violence that his own followers did in his name. It's a weird sort of like he's, he likes to watch it. He literally likes to sit there and watch it from the remove of seeing it on a screen. And then when he's confronted with it directly from someone on in his own party, his response isn't even to embrace it. It's to say, actually, it wasn't us. It was Antifa. It's a very strange. I mean, he in some ways really embodies a lot of the kind of virtual unreality stuff we were talking about yesterday. I mean, he didn't even claim it. He didn't claim it. And you think that these people willing to risk their lives and, and disrupt our government in an insurrection, at least the person they were championing would say, bravo, Judo. He's like, no, it wasn't even us. It was Antifa. Very he strange. claimed it on Wednesday. He claimed yeah. it during the riot. He was yeah. sitting there. That's what everybody was saying in the White House, supposedly. He was sitting there all excited to watch the riot unfold on his behalf. Then when it was convenient for him in the middle of a conversation with Kevin McCarthy, because he is somebody who who has literally no um, uh, uh, connection to or believes he has no connection to, uh, you know, all all facts, all anything that he says are conditional on whatever he needs to say at the moment. So then he said, no, it was Antifa, so don't blame me. And McCarthy had to say, no, they were MAGA. Trust me, I was there, said McCarthy. But trust, you know, this, by the way, is one of the reasons that McCarthy is a contemptible figure. I mean, if after that conversation, which he then retails to the press, uh, he continues to stand as some kind of bulwark against Trump's impeachment and removal. When he had that conversation with Trump, fine. So he'll do what he has to do politically. He's a he's a contemptible figure. You know, we talk about how contemptible it is when people in the press say things that they know not to be true because they're politically convenient. Well, you know, here we are with Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader of the House of Representatives. Uh, interestingly enough, Mitch McConnell will not speak to Trump. Apparently, he has he has decided that he will no longer have any truck with uh, w- with Trump. Which again, maybe that's like closing the barn door after the after the horse has gotten away. But um, I think it's pretty clear, though, that uh, the House and the Senate members are being it's being made clear to the Republicans in the House and Senate that they're on their own here. Meaning, there's going to be there's no directive that they shouldn't vote for impeachment. Or for removal, they should, you know, they should vote their consciences, uh, and that the party is not going to, you know, the party will insist on on nothing. And I doubt after this that McCarthy will make any kind of a speech 
during the debate on impeachment tomorrow saying, oh, you know, unless he does do this, you know, nonsense unity crap, and maybe he will, but maybe he won't say anything. I don't know. I, I thought it was heartening that they included the bullying of Raffensperger in Georgia by Trump in the impeachment as one of the reasons why impeachment was necessary. It wasn't just that was important, I think, because it wasn't just the events of last Wednesday. It was a pattern and practice of threats to elected officials, which put those elected officials lives at risk. And I think that is I was glad to see that included because that's uh, that doesn't allow people to rationalize away. Oh, it was just some rabble rousers on Wednesday. No, this is a pattern in practice, and it starts at the top. And we were saying that 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 the Georgia conversation this was itself impeachable. This was you know before we had any you know uh, visions was, of, of of what <laughs> of what took place on Wednesday. Abe, you had said that that was the worst thing a president had ever said on tape. Right. It right. Was for- about 36 hours. Yeah. Well, look, you know, uh, there, there is an idea floating around that the, uh, that the Biden administration in conjunction with the, the House and the Senate should convene some kind of a committee to investigate uh, uh, the riot, um, you know, and to do a report on the riot, sort of like the 9-11 Commission report to get all the facts out and get everything, you know, as authoritative uh, as possible. Uh, generally speaking, I think such things are, you know, are, are, are performative and false and fake. I, I would actually like to read such a report that, uh, that is, you know, in which people are, are required to speak under oath uh, about what happened and, uh, you know, under penalty of perjury so that we get some real sense of how all of this, you know, developed. Um, and evolved. Uh, maybe it would be bad for national unity. Maybe it would be bad for healing. You know, remember Gerald Ford granted Richard Nixon that irrevocable pardon uh, after after Ford became president in order, as he said, to close the subject down so that it would not uh, hang over American political life for the next uh, you know generation. Um, I don't know that that's possible, uh, you know, but that, but that was, so maybe, maybe that, maybe that's a, a better model. Um, but of course it will be done anyway. I mean, media will do it. And, it you has know. to be, it would be an insane dereliction of our responsibility to posterity to not investigate how this happened. There's too much ambiguity about why there was a delayed response from the national guard who approved it. When did they approve it? What was the president doing? When was he doing it? Who did he speak with? What did he say when he spoke with these and these weird things? No, that we're no, hearing about the suspicion, right. but we don't have definitive answers to that. And we absolutely must have. It. And of course the weird stuff that's that w- w- with the Capitol police, I mean, we've seen the footage, the horrible footage of the violence being done to the Capitol police by the rioters. But then there are these suspensions of the, the policeman who put on a MAGA hat, the other policeman who took selfies with the crowd. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of videos of, of yeah. people finding the, a little less resistance to entering the Capitol from Capitol Police than they should have. And everybody who's on Team Lynn Wood here has latched onto that like flotsam in a shipwreck. That is their justification for all of this, that this was a vast conspiracy. And both both sides, yeah, the left, too, says there's a vast conspiracy within the police. They're on Team MAGA. They wanted these, these lawmakers to be killed. There were police officers from various uh, local police departments as a part of the mob who were flashing their badges to get in there. There's conspiracies on all sides of this thing. And if we don't get definitive answers one way or the other, they're, they're only going to fester. 
Well, there was that key moment in one of those pieces of, of footage that uh, was being used in the in the in the outset uh, on on Thursday or whenever of saying the Capitol Police were complicit with this Capitol policeman directing uh, uh, the uh, you know rioters in a certain direction, and it was like, ah, oh, you see, they're in it with them, and then it turned out that he was directing them away from the Senate chamber. Since they didn't know where they were going, they're like, "Where's the Senate chamber?" And he's like, "It's over there," sending them toward the rotunda uh, instead of toward the Senate chamber and guiding them in that direction. But the first looking at it without context, it looked as though something else had been going on. And all this, like, yeah, it wasn't me. The the whole National Guard thing. No, they said no, it wasn't me. They I they said on Tuesday, but I said that we should. But then somebody said we shouldn't. Well, who was that somebody? You know what? What was what was what was going on there? And it, it would be very very helpful, also, so that it's not just the press, because um, the press is now, you know, not that anybody's going to trust a, a, a finding from one of these commissions that doesn't go the way they want it to go. Um, but you know, if the Washington Post does a big, you know, does a big multi month takeout on this. You know, instantly, know everybody at the Federalist is going to say, "Well, it's the Washington Post." UK. Also, they're owned by Jeff Bezos, and that's Amazon Web Services, and they parlor, and so we don't even need to pay attention to what they say. So, at the very least, a bipartisan commission could, in fact, get to the bottom of of of, of this uh, in some creditable fashion. And with that, um, I want to thank everybody, by the way, who sent us nice messages about the gigantically long podcast yesterday that we were worried nobody would want to sit through. Apparently, a lot of you did want to sit through it, and it was very kind of you to do so. And uh, I thank you very much for your uh, for your attention and um, and for your patience with us uh, and for your kind words. And until tomorrow, for Noah, Abe, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.